Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Uh, it's 9 a.m. on March 25th, Wednesday, March 25th in California. It's 5 p.m. in rural Poland. I'm talking to Anne Applebaum, a distinguished historian and staff writer at The Atlantic, who is somewhere in Poland. And whereabouts are you? <laughs> Um, I'm in northwest Poland. Near The nearest big city is called Bydgoszcz, but we have a country house, which is genuinely in the middle of nowhere, and that's where I am at the moment. So you're in isolation? We are in isolation. We are actually under quarantine because I came back to the country. I was I had been in London, and I came back to Poland right as, the, as they made a decision to close the border. And the law now is that anybody who comes in has to be in quarantine for two weeks if you come from abroad. I actually didn't know the origins of the word quarantine till I read your last piece about. Yes, uh, it comes from it comes from medieval Venice. Um, it was what the the Venetians passed a law that said travelers coming. I think I think it was originally travelers from plague countries. Then it was all travelers during during plague moments of uh, when the bubonic plague was spreading had to remain in quarantine for originally thirty days and then forty days, and that's where the word quarant you know the 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 Latin origin is the word for. So um, that's where um, that's where the word comes from. So you're in your quarantine in, in rural Poland, but because of that, or in spite of that, you've been very busy. You you've written a couple of really um, provocative, stimulating pieces uh, recently in the Atlantic about the coronavirus crisis. The first, which came out on March 15th, is entitled "The Coronavirus Called America's Bluff." And as a, both a historian and a, and a journalist, you argue that we can learn, or at least in the United States, uh, we can learn the significance of the coronavirus crisis from uh, an event in, in mid-19th uh, century Japan. So I, I was trying to, I was, I was coming up for a metaphor. I've been so bothered by the American reaction to the crisis. Um, partly it's partly to do with the Trump administration's reaction Trump's initial attempts to kind of cover it up and to and to dissemble about it and to and not to tell people the truth even when intelligence reports said something different I was also very struck by um, a story that the New York Times originally wrote that a lot of others have commented on which was of a a um, a researcher in Seattle uh, um, a flu researcher who who found evidence in in way way back in January and early February that the virus was already in Seattle and it was already moving around and people were getting it and these were people who'd not been out of the country and she was told she wasn't allowed to do any testing because she she'd been taking samples from um, from people for to test for flu um, and because of bureaucratic reasons she didn't have the right kind of lab you know there there were other you know wasn't it's not still not entirely clear why she was told not to do it and i thought you know this is totally unacceptable you know we have a 
modern bureaucracy and a modern political system, which is just not able to deal with this kind of crisis anymore. And the historical reference I searched for was the moment when Japan in the 19th century suddenly realized that its image of itself as the center of the world, as the most important country in the world. Vertex. You use this word vertex, right? Yes, that's what that was. A, that's a quote from a Japanese nationalist writer in, uh, in the 19th century. Um, you know, we are the vertex of the earth. You know, we are the, or the, or the world's, you know, we're the most important country. And this was suddenly shattered by the arrival of um, famously Commodore Admiral Perry's ships arrived in Tokyo Harbor, and suddenly, suddenly Japan was confronted with a civilization that was much more modern than it was. Um, you know, they they that had you know much higher technology, um, and the Japanese were were shocked and dismayed, and their reaction was to under to to carry out this extraordinary modernization of the state. And this is known as the Meiji Restoration, which takes place in the second half of the nineteenth century. And their whole honor culture, you know, the samurai warrior leaders and so, you know, they said, no, we can't have that anymore. We need a modern bureaucratic state. We need technology. We need to teach science. We need to learn from, from the outside world. We need to learn how to, how, what scientific method is and how it works. We need to teach our children differently. The whole thing, the education system, the bureaucracy and everything. And I thought, you know, this is a real, this is that kind of warning sign to the United States, you know. Right. So we fast forward 180 years. And what you're saying is that the coronavirus crisis reveals, and again, I'm quoting you, the, the unclothed emperor. Our political system is in far worse shape than any of us could have imagined. What is it telling us? So it, it so we have a, you know, we now have a political system in which, um, in which experts like that doctor in Seattle, you know, are prevented from making decisions. We have a political system that, Actually disguised, you know, we, had, we the president was. It was possible for the president to, you know, to cover up, you know, the 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 seriousness of this virus. And you know, we've all been very rightly upset about how the Chinese covered up the virus initially, um, and and let it spread in in the very early days. But you know, and I, and, you know, and and I'm not by any means, you know, so, you know, celebrating the Chinese Communist Party. On the contrary, I'm just saying that when we are at the point when the U.S. government is achieving the same outcomes as the Chinese Communist Party. In other words, the same lack of transparency, the same instinct to cover up bad news. Um, you know, when we have, when we, when our political system is, has made that possible, you know, then we are, we're just living in the wrong century. I mean, the kinds of, you know, medical and scientific and other kinds of challenges that we're, we now have to face need a much more intelligent, a much more sensitive bureaucracy. Um, we need to reinvest. We need to think much harder about who our civil servants are, um, who's working for the state, you know, who, who works. And, you know, we can't, we can't have a system whereby, you know, public health officials, you know, change every four years at the president's whim. Um, and, and, you know, of course, I understand that cabinet secretaries have to change, but do all their deputies have to change and their deputies, deputies and their deputies, 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 because that's what happens now. I get that. Right. I get I get your argument that uh, that America is in the same boat as China in terms of its ineffective response. But is there a positive model? What about the Singapore, perhaps, um, or South Korea? 
Oh, no, no, there are many positive models and, and there are many, po- and these are all democracies. I mean, you know, Taiwan and South Korea are both excellent models for how you can use technology to track, how you can, um, you know, to track the, the movement of the disease, um, how you can, I mean, for example, here I am in rural Poland, we, we're under quarantine and the police drive by every day to make sure we're here. You know, they're very nice and polite and so on. It's not unpleasant, but, um, but that's ridiculous. Um, you know, we te- there isn't a there isn't a technological way to check where we are. I mean, it's it's um, you know, and there isn't a way to do that whereby we can you know guarantee that we ha- give over in the interest of public safety. We give up some privacy for for a short period of time and then give it back. I mean, there there are um, there are there are a number of nations that are far ahead of the United States in understanding how to use technology to track. Um, health situations um, to to you know to, to to monitor the safety of the population, um, you know, and and we and you know the U.S. even has companies that are probably capable of doing this, but the federal government isn't capable of doing it, and the you know and state governments aren't capable of doing it, or at least not yet. I mean, may, they may they may get they may get to that during this crisis, but. How is it possible that we've allowed our government system, our bureaucracy, our civil service, our public servants, how have we allowed them to fall so far behind the rest of the world so so that they are incapable of doing what South Korea can do? I mean, I actually just read while I was um, while I was preparing to do this podcast, I was just reading about the, apparently President Trump has asked South Korea if we can buy some test kits from them from, you know, I mean, South Korea had the same you know, had the same awareness of this disease, you know, from the starting at the same moment that we did. They also knew about it in January, but they, they began manufacturing test kits right away. And now the U S is asking, you know, incidentally an ally that, um, that Trump has been very dismissive of. Um, we're now asking them for help. Well, you know, why didn't we do it? Why don't, why weren't we on the ball? Why weren't we producing test kits six weeks ago? And so as, as a, a historian and as a, a journalist who, who travels the world, some people would say to you, well, South Korea has a different culture, a more conformist, a more, communi- a more communitarian culture. To what extent is that true? How can America perhaps also begin to reinvent its culture so that people uh, not only behave in a more communitarian way, but also generate a, a higher quality bureaucratic elite? Well, first of all, I think a lot of Americans are behaving in a very communitarian way. I mean, the, you know, the requests for, you know, to people to stay home um, in those East Coast and West Coast cities that have made it seem to be working. I mean, people are staying home. I mean, I just, I'm not sure that it's true that South Korea has some, you know, genetic or national difference that's, you know, they just simply have a more intelligent way of monitoring disease. Um, and they have, they have, a, and and the you know the cultural difference that's important is that they value their bureaucrats. They they invest in them. You know they they educate. They're they're concerned that educated people have important jobs in public health. I mean, we have many many good people. You know, we have some of the best public health programs in the world. I mean, Johns Hopkins University is the is the star leader in public health. Um, you know, but but somehow that knowledge and that ability is not inside the government; it's outside the government, and that's the thing that we need to fix um, if we're gonna, you know. And and by the way, this is this is the, um, um, this is you know this this is this is one instance of it. But I can think of other 
you know, other coming challenges that might present very similar problems. For example, that's, you know, cyber warfare or, or, or cyber terrorism. You know, this also requires a very, very high level of competent people working for the government. Um, and this is something that we, you know, we did make sure that we're recruiting those people, we're paying them, we're educating them. All that has to be, um, has to be taken much more seriously. And you and I have talked about this before uh, in our How to Fix Democracy series. Um, you spoke very eloquently about the threat of, I think you called it creeping authoritarianism. Um, you also fear that this may be an opportunity for the the new authoritarians, the new populists to grab more power, whether it's Orban in, in Hungary or Trump in the United States. How fearful are you that this crisis might actually compound our current crisis of democracy? So that is a, that is a very, very real and important person, uh, possibility. I mean, one of the reasons why some very harsh measures are being taken is that there are politicians who wish to portray themselves as doing something very, you know, definitive and harsh and serious, whether or not it actually works. And actually, the example I gave in in the article that um, that, that you're referring to that I that that I wrote a couple of days ago um, is actually the closing of the Polish border, which was done very chaotically. Um, it left all kinds of people stranded all over the place. Um, it, it led to a huge backlog, a sort of long lines of people at the border, you know, waiting to cross over, which was, of course, not healthy and, and not safe at all um, at this particular moment. But the temptation of particularly in places where there's there, you know, like like Poland or like Hungary, like the U.S., where we are behind in terms of the science and in terms of the medical ways of coping with this, um, the temptation to do dramatic authoritarian gestures is going to be very strong. And we have one already in Hungary where the government has put forward a, a law that would give the, the prime minister, essentially the, the governing, the ruling party, um, the chance to essentially ignore all laws. You know, they don't have to ob obey by any existing laws. It's not clear why they need this power, but this is the power they've given themselves to. Um, and they've accused anybody in the opposition who's against this measure, they've accused them of being pro-virus. You know, so they're, you know, if you're in favor of health and safety, then you're in favor of giving us these extra powers. And of course, it's unclear how long this would last, and it's unclear why they really need it, and it's unclear um, how else it might be used. Um, and you can you can well imagine um, gestures like that. I mean, the, the Trump administration has also talked about um, the, the D Department of Justice has also talked about, um, oh, we need powers to arrest people without the, without normal procedures, you know, as if there's, this was a terrorist event or a war. I'm you know, I didn't see why we need to give them that. What do they need that for right now? I mean, the, you know, the only the only reason I can think of is that is that it will allow, you know, it will allow people to break the law. Um, or allow people to, you know, evade rule of law, you know, for 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 other reasons, um, and you know, in in events like this in history, I mean, we were we started out talking a little bit about Venice. Um, historically, people have been willing to give up certain kinds of freedom in exchange for safety at these kinds of times of crisis, and this may be, um, you know, this you know, and 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 I and I should say, you know, many people are doing that consensually, you know, like in San Francisco or in Washington D.C. or in, in, um, you know, even in London, you know, um, you know, people are consensually agreeing to go along this with it for a limited period of time in the understanding of the public good. Um, 
you know, and just like people in South Korea have agreed, if you have a, if you've been diagnosed with the, with the, with the coronavirus, you put an app in your phone and you agree to be tracked. And all that is fine as long as there are definitive limits, as long as you can retrieve your privacy or retrieve your data once it's over. Um, and as long as there are clear end dates and, th- and that it's controlled by, you know, by elected legislatures and by the rule of law. So this doesn't have to be a crisis for a liberal democracy, but it could be. I know, um, uh, Anne, you're going to be wary as a historian of making predictions, but what would be in six months or a year, what would be both the best and the worst case scenarios in this crisis? What is, what is the warning and, and how could it turn out to actually be, if not a, a healthy crisis, one that benefits us in the long run? So the healthy outcome would be that people say, right, we can't live with this kind of amateurism anymore. You know, we need permanent, you know, investment in, um, in you know, in a, in a pandemic teams who are professional, who can't be, you know, fired by one administration who, who doesn't understand them, who are the best people in the world, who are you know, who are the best, you know, who have all the great talents that, you know, that, that American universities can produce. Um, we would also need to be much more heavily invested in the in international, you know, data sharing on disease, on viruses, on, on vaccines. You know, there should be, you, you know, you could, you could imagine a kind of 21st century version of the WHO, which is, you know, which is, which is a UN bureaucracy, which is not quite up to this current moment, you know, which consisted of, you know, sciences, scientists and labs around the world who were in constant communication and who were able to warn one another when things were happening and were able to, you know, test and come up with solutions all at the same time. I mean, you could, you could imagine a modernization of public health and indeed, a more, maybe a modernization of other parts of the of the U.S. bureaucracy um, that would you know that would prevent this kind of thing from 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 happening again. I mean, the worst case scenarios involve social breakdown. I mean, the you know the disease runs rampant. Um, everybody decides, as the president said, you know, in the last twenty four hours, you know, everybody decides that oh, we need to go back to church at Easter. Um, the disease spreads further you know, with terrible long-term damage to the economy, with long-term damage to, to, to the political system. Um, you know, you can imagine some very, very, very bad outcomes indeed. I mean, I, I hope that's not what's going to happen. Um, but the but a lot depends on how how people understand this and interpret this. You know, is it, a, you know, is this just a kind of piece of dumb luck or is this really, you know, showing us that we weren't prepared? We don't have the systems in place. We don't have, um, you know, we don't, we haven't, we don't have the bureaucracy that's capable of dealing with this kind of problem. So, so Anne, uh, finally, um, you're a, you're a historian, a journalist, you've written books, you read many, many books. What, what's one book that people perhaps wouldn't know about that they might read while they're in isolation, while they're stuck at home in this crisis? Well, I, assuming that you've already read Camus' The Plague, which is a which is the classic book about how people react to plagues. Um, I would suggest reading David Quammen's book Spillover. It's called Spillover: Animal Infections and the Next Human Pandemic, um, which is um, a, 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 an excellent book on exactly what we're going through right now. In other words, how will the next infection spread? Where do they come from? Why are humans subject to them? I mean, it's a kind of, you know, it sort of predict, predicted everything that's happening um, right now. Well, Anne, I hope you 
you stay away from animals in rural Poland and you stay safe, stay well, continue writing your amazing pieces for The Atlantic. And I look forward to having you on the show again quite soon, I hope, to uh, analyze the, the latest situation. Great. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast. It's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future, it's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.